Welcome, welcome. Shout out to Kayla for some reason. Give it up to Kayla Jones for some reason. Yeah, yeah. Sweet. Well, what is up, everybody? My name is Joe Nealis, and I'm the Associate Salt Director here. If you guys are new, welcome to the family. You guys are going to find out pretty quick that we are a family here, and we're glad that you guys have joined us tonight. So, yes. Woo. All right. <laughs> wow, more people. Great. All right. So, um, so in college, you get a lot of papers. Can I get an amen? Amen. Lots of papers. And there's always one source that they tell you not to go to for your information. What is it? Wikipedia. Wikipedia. Right? They always tell you, don't go to Wikipedia. All the information on there is super unreliable, right? And the reason why is because literally anybody can go onto Wikipedia and change things. Your weird Aunt Karen who posts memes on Facebook all the time, she has access to Wikipedia, okay? That's really scary. So obviously, the things that you find on Wikipedia are not always true. And the makers of Wikipedia, they actually, they said this. They said, always be careful what you read. It might not be consistently accurate. And I have an example that I want to show you. Can you go ahead and put it on the screen for me? So we all know Emma Stone. Emma Stone, great. Um, this is what her Wikipedia said. Emma, Jean, or Emma Stone is a hot American actress with a beautiful smile. In 1987, she fell out of the sky as an angel. Wow. Yeah. Some of you, <laughs> you guys are like, that's true. What's the deal? What? But as a result of examples like this, and there are like hundreds more, we don't trust Wikipedia, right? It's entertaining, yeah, but it's not a good source of information for you. It's not very reliable. It's not a reliable source. You're never going to cite that in your paper, at least I hope. Some of you guys are like, that's all I use, Wikipedia. Probably not a good idea, okay? Because it's unreliable. And for some of you, maybe that's where you are with the Bible. Maybe you're like, yeah, it's got good stories, but I just don't really know if it's a reliable source. I mean, wasn't it, wasn't the last book written almost 1,900 years ago, right? You're telling me that the Bible that I, we're holding in our hands right now in 2021, right now, that that's the same Bible that Jesus and the apostles had? I mean, something's had to change. And so I think that as Christians, we don't really engage these questions. The question of, is the Bible reliable? And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And I think that what we often do is we blindly trust what the Bible says. And that's not a bad thing. That's actually been a blessing to many of us, right? We haven't done all the research, but we know that we, we believe that God has met us when we've read Scripture. But I think that it's really healthy for us as Christians to engage these conversations, engage these questions. Is the Bible actually reliable? And so what I want to do tonight is I want to go through three questions that I believe will actually help us to better understand whether the Bible is something that we can trust or not, whether it's reliable or whether it's not reliable. And so the first question, so this is the first point, the first question is, is it reliable? Is it reliable? So over the last 200 years, uh, there are scholars, they're called textual critics. 
Uh, and basically what they do is they look really closely at the, at the Bible and they'll study the original texts and all the ancient manuscripts. And what they'll do is they'll check all the differences. And there's actually been a lot of really good things that have come as a result of, like, they call it text criticism. It's been a great blessing. And it's actually, you'll see uh, in a lot of commentaries these days, those are written by people who have studied the Bible. They're text critics. But there are some textual critics who have looked at the Bible and said, well, this is actually going to be different, right? There, there are some changes here. And so that's a big deal. And the reason why that's a big deal is if the Bible is not reliable, Christians in the room, if the Bible is not reliable, then we're hopeless. We are left to believing that we are a part of an aimless universe and that we're just waiting to die. This source of, the source of all that we know about God, right? We, we believe that we know God because we've been in the scriptures. But if it's not reliable, then everything that you've learned is, is false and groundless. So what I'm trying to say is that your faith is at stake. If the Bible's not reliable, then your faith is at stake. So we have to answer the question, is the Bible reliable? I'm going to give you guys two little sub-points underneath this first question. And the first is this. It is textually reliable. That's the first. It is textually reliable. So we have to start by acknowledging something. Not a single one of the manuscripts that we have of the Bible, not a single one completely agrees with one another. Not a single one. There are thousands of differences in those manuscripts. Thousands of differences. And that's significant if you can show us that it changes the Bible's message. If it doesn't change the Bible's message, then it's not a big deal, and we can say that the Bible is truly reliable. But if not, we're in trouble. And so... Here's what you guys need to know. 99.5% of the differences and the changes that you see in these manuscripts fall into these two categories. Are you ready? So 99.5% of these changes or these differences are in these two categories. The first category takes up 70%. It's a big chunk of the pie, okay? You know what it is? I'm going to blow your mind. Spelling differences. It's the difference between spelling John, J-O-H-N, and J-O-H-N-N. Whoa. Oh, my gosh. And they read that. that that's considered a difference. And that's 70% of the, of the changes or the differences that you see in these manuscripts. The other portion, so the second category, is in reference to words that are not translatable into English because they have to do with the particle V. Right, so basically what that means is you're going to see manuscripts that either say the Paul loves Jesus or Paul loves Jesus. Time out, not God's word. Oh my gosh. Whoa, all right. That's 99.5% of the differences that you see amongst the manuscripts. Now, if you're like me, you're pretty curious about the 0.5%. Because even if that 0.5% is small, it still changes the message of the Bible. And that's a really big deal. 
And so the 0.5% of the Bible, this percentage actually has to do with translations that could change the message of the Bible. It could change the message of the Bible. Now, there's a scholar, his name is Bart Ehrman. He wrote a book in the early 2000s called Misquoting Jesus. It was like a number one bestseller, and basically his premise is this. You can't trust the Gospels. So many differences, right? There's so many things here, and man, you can't trust the Bible because that's true. And he uses actually this example that I'm about to give you guys, and it's a part of the 0.5%, right? And it's in the book of Mark. If you guys want to flip there, Here's the example. Here's one of the differences. This is one of the few differences, the 0.5% where it could change the message of the Bible. And scholars like Bart Ehrman would say, yes, absolutely, it changes the message of the Bible. You cannot trust it. All right? So Mark chapter 1, let me give you a little bit of context here. So there is a man who has leprosy. And if you don't know what leprosy is, it means it's essentially it's a, it's a disease where your skin is literally dying and it's falling off. This is a pretty common thing that happened. You see it all over the Bible. And this man, he knows that only Jesus could heal him. And so look with me at verse 40. It says this. Then a man with leprosy came to him and on his knees begged him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now here's where the problem can, can come, all right? Verse 41. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I'm willing, he told him, be made clean. Is there anything there that seems wrong? No. To the believer who's read the Bible before, that's a pretty typical event that you've seen Jesus do. Oh, someone with leprosy, someone who needs to be healed, boom, they're healed. It's pretty typical. But there are earlier manuscripts of this passage that it doesn't say he had compassion. Instead, it says he was filled with anger, right? So instead of it saying moved with compassion, it says moved with anger or moved with indignation. All right. That's a pretty big deal. Some of you guys are like, wait, is Jesus like really moody and angry? And like, are we just covering it up with our English translations? Like, are we just more comfortable with like a compassionate Jesus? Is that what's going on? Are we hiding something about Jesus? What's going on here? So Bart Ehrman and a bunch of scholars would say, yes, it's changed who Jesus is. You can't trust the Bible. Now, here's what you should know. It doesn't change the message of the Bible. Here's why. All throughout the book of Mark, Mark portrays Jesus as the passionate and compassionate Savior. He is the man who has pure emotion, right? His, his emotions are not filled with sin like ours are. So his anger is right. It's good, it's pure. And his compassion is good and it's pure. It's not tainted by anything. And so what we see here is even if you translated it, he was moved with anger. The reality is it's that anger that actually was a res like ended up resulting in his healing. His anger was a means by which he was healed. His pure anger was the way in which he was healed. It was a good anger. And you guys are like, well, what do you mean a good anger here? Was, was Jesus just mad he was busy and this guy was like, hey, can you heal me? He's like, can't you see I'm busy? Uh, you know, stiff arm this guy, right? That's not what happened. Jesus 
as he is perfectly angry, he's angry not at this man. He's angry at the sickness that he's dealing with because none of us were created to be sick or to die. That's why, that's why we grieve so much when people die, when people pass, or when people get a terminal illness or something, especially like leprosy. If you see in Genesis and even Christians now, we, we hope that our hope is in the second coming of Christ when he will come and make everything new, when death will be no more and tears will be wiped away, the day where there's no more pain or no more crying. And so what Jesus is doing is he's saying, man, this is not how it was supposed to be. Be healed. That anger doesn't change who Jesus is. Jesus is passionate and he's compassionate and those things do not go against each other. They exist together. And now here's the second thing. Our Bibles are not embarrassed about textual differences. If you guys look at your Bibles right now, in some, my Bible doesn't have it, but most Bibles will actually have a footnote. The footnote next to any passage that has a textual difference. A little footnote, and then it'll, if you look at the bottom, it'll say, it could be translated this way. No one's embarrassed by that. Great, we know that. Jesus is still king. Amen? Amen. So we're not embarrassed about that. So the bottom line is this. Is, does every manuscript match each other? No. That's widely known. But none of those changes, and this is also widely known, none of these changes change anything that you believe about the Bible. Changes nothing. Changes nothing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Changes nothing about the Bible. So the second point underneath our first, the second is it is historically reliable. It's historically reliable. Now, unlike any religious text, the Bible makes claims all the time, makes predictions, and then they happen. Like hundreds of years before these things actually happen, there are predictions, boom, and hundreds of years later, they happen. And I can think of no better example than the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in the Old Testament, there were 351 prophecies about a Messiah who would come, who was God who took on flesh to die for the sins of the world. And there were 351 prophecies. And here's the thing. They weren't just general prophecies, okay? It wasn't like, uh, one day there will be a guy who will come to earth, period. That's not what the prophecies were. They were specific hey, he will be born in Bethlehem. Hey, this is, what, this is who he will be. This is what his life will look like. This is what he'll do in his life. This is what his death will be like. And this is what his death will mean. 351 prophecies. And when Jesus came to earth, he fulfilled not 10, not 20, not 100, not 200. He fulfilled all 351 prophecies. You can look this up. Like, literally, if you just type it in on Google and you look at 351 prophecies about Jesus, they're all on there. Boom, this verse. Look, and it matches with this. Zechariah says this, and the Gospel of Matthew says this, and look at these fulfillments. Oh, my goodness. Now, maybe you're still like, oh, I don't know. Come on, that's going to be coincidence. I mean, come on. Now, 
There was a guy who was in a similar spot as you. He was uh, uh, the head of mathematics at Pasadena College in California. And he did a study. And his question was, what are the odds that someone can fulfill just eight of these prophecies? Just eight. Not, not even like 50. Not 351, just the eight. What are the odds that one person can fulfill eight messianic prophecies or predictions? You know what he came to? The odds that someone would fulfill eight prophecies is one in 100 trillion. To put that into perspective, here's how he describes it. It would be like going down to Texas. Any Texas people? Yeah, that's right. Boo! <laughs> it, it would be like going down to Texas and filling it a, a foot and a half deep with quarters. All of Texas, a foot and a half with quarters, marking one of those quarters, throwing it into this ocean of quarters, right? A foot and a half deep all over Texas, throwing it into the sea of quarters, blindfolding someone and telling them to go find it, and they find it. One in 100 trillion to fulfill eight. Jesus Christ fulfilled 351. The Bible is historically reliable. But if we just stopped at saying, man, the Bible's reliable, we'd be doing a huge disservice to what the Bible actually says about itself. We'd be doing a huge injustice to it. Because the Bible makes claims about itself that make it more than just a textbook or a storybook or just something that's got a bunch of wise sayings. The Bible actually says more about itself. And these claims about its identity actually explain why we come here to hear the Bible preached. These claims about itself actually tell us why we as Christians read it and we strive to be in it. And it ultimately determines how we approach the Bible. So this brings us to our second point, which is, what is the Bible? This is our second question we're asking. What is the Bible? What is the Bible? Open up your Bibles with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to go there. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. 2 Peter is like all the way towards the end of the Bible. I can't even find it. Ah, there it is. All the way at the end of the Bible. And here's what's going on here. 2 Peter was written by the Apostle Peter. Blowing your mind. It was written by the Apostle Peter. And he was one of Jesus' closest followers when he was on earth. He's one of Jesus' closest followers on earth. And what he's doing at this time is he's writing to false, he's writing against false teachers. He's warning Christians like you and me, saying, stay away from false teachers. These false teachers were going outside of the Bible and were making up these stories and saying, look, Jesus said this, Jesus did that. Put your hope over here. And they were making up these stories in order to exercise influence over these people, and it was working. Now, some of you are here, and maybe that's what you think the Bible is. It's, it's a bunch of made-up stories about, with the purpose of, man, bringing order to society and control and influence, right? Maybe, maybe that's where you are, and that's what the false teachers were doing. They were saying, 
like, hey, look at my, listen to my stories, listen to why I have to say, I have all these stories, blah, 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 I'm making them up, and they're exercising all this influence. And Peter is rightly infuriated. He's angry about it, and rightfully so. And this is what he says, look with me, starting in verse 16. He says, For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Pause. He's clearly saying right there, I'm not following cleverly. I'm not, I'm not like those guys who are making up stories, okay? I'm not making this up. I saw Jesus in his glory. I saw him. I saw him in all of his glory. Listen to me. Verse 17 it says, For he, Jesus, he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. He's saying, not, Guys, listen, I saw him with my eyes, and this is actually what I heard. Word for word, I heard God and the Father from heaven say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This Jesus man that you saw crucified, he's the Messiah. He rose. I'm telling you, you need to believe this. And keep reading verse 19. He says, we also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He's saying, Look, we have the prophetic word, right? We have all of these 351 prophecies, and they've all been fulfilled. It's strongly confirmed. If you want to know that, just open up your Bible. He's saying, look, just look there. We have the prophetic word. You don't believe me? You don't believe that I saw the risen Jesus? Just look at your Bible. Because we have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. And then, listen to this. He says, verse 20, Above all, you know this. No prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, this is a miracle, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the first point underneath, what is the Bible? The Bible is God's word not man's myths. The Bible is God's word, not man's myths. Do you guys know what Peter just said? Peter just said, listen, if you don't believe that what I'm saying is true, go look to the prophetic word. If you don't, like, if you don't believe that I truly saw this risen Jesus, go look at, read your Bibles, look at the Old Testament, look at what Jesus has done. And then he says in verse 21, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He's saying that the Bible is actually God's word. The Bible is actually God's word. God has used dozens of people, dozens of authors over the course of 1,500 years to speak clearly to us, to communicate clearly to us about who he is. Over 1,500 years he's done this, and one theologian says this about the whole process. He says, God spoke through human authors in such a way that his words were simultaneously their words. And their words were simultaneously his. The Bible is the word of God through the words of human beings. God perfectly reveals himself to us 
through the Bible. And he speaks to us right here where we are. That's why a few weeks ago, it's been a while, but a few weeks ago I started a rallying cry. Something that would remind us that when we come to hear the Bible, we actually hear from God's word right here, right now. That God is actually speaking to our hearts. When we hear the Bible, it's not just some old book that doesn't have anything to do with you. Yeah, it was true for them, not for me. No, this is God speaking to us right here, right now. And that rallying cry was this. When we hear God's word, we hear God's voice. When we hear God's word, we hear God's voice. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to try it again. When I say when we hear God's word, we, you'll say, hear God's voice. All right? We'll test this out. You ready? Yes. Yes. All right. When we hear God's word, we hear God's voice. That's right. Do you believe that? We hear God's word. We hear his voice. He meets us and he speaks to us right here and right now. The Bible is God's word, not man's myths. Now, here's the thing. Words have power, right? Words have power. Many of us, how many of you guys have had that experience maybe when you're listening to a sermon or you're listening to someone teach and it just stirs something in you? You're like, oh man, I'll, I'll go wherever this guy te- like, takes me. I don't care, whatever. Like, I, man, I, I, I'm, this person gets me excited. And I, man, I'm just, I'm here with it, right? It stirs your heart. And, and movements have been started based off of powerful speakers because words have power. Now, if human words have that much power, how much more power does God's word have in our hearts? This brings us to our third point. What does it do? What does the Bible do? So flip with me over to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. And we're asking the question, man, what does the Bible do? We, we know that it's God's word. We've seen it. But what does it actually do? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It says this. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The author is telling us that when we open God's word, it is not a dead document. It is not a history book, not even just a a good way to live your life. The Bible is living. It's breathing. And when you come to it, it speaks and it cuts your heart. Right? He's literally saying to us, he's saying, when you read the Bible in faith, the Bible actually cuts deep in your heart. He says it's as sharp as a double-edged sword. Sharper than a double-edged sword. So, like a surgeon, cuts deep to take out what's toxic. The Bible cuts deep to take out what's toxic in your heart. The Bible cuts and it pierces our hearts. And many of us in this room have felt the power of God's word in your heart. And then you've been convicted. You've felt the power of God's word. It's pierced your heart. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. So the next verse, it says this. 
No creature is hidden from him. But all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You know what he's saying? When you feel conviction, when you feel convicted by the word of God, that is God convicting you. Because he's the one to whom we have to give an account. And for some of you, man, that's a really terrifying thought. You think that the ugliness of your heart is too horrible for God to ever accept you. You feel this conviction. You're like, man, if God saw all of my heart, if God saw everything that I did, if God saw all the things that, even just the things I did before I came to Salt Company, if God saw all that, I'd have no hope being accepted. So what do you do? If that's you, what do you do? You come to the throne of grace. Look at me at verse 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. To those of you who feel the crushing weight of God's word, as maybe you've been convicted, as you feel that crushing weight, you know what this passage is telling you to do? It says that since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the Son of God, he's been, he was now in heaven, he's in heaven now as our high priest. As a result of that, you can come to the throne of grace. Now, if you don't know what a high priest is, in the Old Testament, a high priest is someone who would represent man to God. This is someone who would stand on behalf of large groups of people and represent them all to God. And what they would do is would offer these sacrifices. They would sacrifice goats, sheep, and just animals in general. They would sacrifice these animals for the forgiveness of sin. And the problem is, we see in Hebrews, the problem was that these sacrifices were actually never good sacrifices because they had to be done over and over again. They weren't sufficient. But Jesus Christ is different. His blood, because of the perfect life that he lived, he never sinned. His sacrifice wasn't tainted. It was a pure sacrifice. And so now what Jesus does, as our high priest, he represents you to God. And what he does is he looks at the sacrifice, the blood that he shed on the cross. And he says, Father, they've sinned, but look, look at this sacrifice. It's pure, it's perfect. And the Father delights to forgive you. He delights to forgive you of your sin, and not just once, not just when you come to faith. It's more than that. Because Jesus Christ is alive today, every single day you can come to the throne of grace and not the throne of judgment. You can come to the throne of grace, and friend, maybe you're listening right now and you're convicted of your lack of faith. Maybe for a while, you've been pushing Christianity off because the Bible, you're like, ah, oh, I don't know if I can trust it. Is it actually reliable? 
And you're convicted because you're like, man, you're seeing everything. And you're like, man, I, the Bible, maybe it is truly God's word. If that's you, would you take his invitation? Would you take this invitation to come to the throne of grace? You see, the Bible is reliable. Textually, historically, not only that, but it's also God's word and it convicts and it challenges us. So what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that? Maybe after hearing all this, you're still here and you're like, man, I I, I don't believe it. I just don't really know if the Bible is truly reliable. Friend, if, if if I can say this, I don't think it's a matter of the facts for you. I think it's deeper. Because I've shown all my, I put all my cards on the table. I've shown you what's true, but you're still rejecting it. And I'm convinced that even if we had a conversation later and I showed you, man, the Bible's reliable, boom, 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 I can give you all the evidence and you still wouldn't believe. And it's not because you haven't seen the facts. Maybe it's because you're afraid of what those facts point to. And what those facts point to is that an all-powerful, all-wise, and all-loving God exists. And that scares you. Because then that would mean that everything in your life would change. You're not going to be in charge of your life anymore. You're not in absolute, you're, you're not the, the one who makes all of the decisions, right? You're not the authority in your life. God would be. And that's scary to you. I, I, like, I like this life that I live. So I don't want to believe that this God exists. Friend, I have never once met a Christian a, a true practicing Christian, I've never once heard a Christian say to me, yeah, this Jesus thing, it's kind of boring. This Jesus thing, I don't know about it. It doesn't really satisfy me. Ah, it's not as great as you think it is. It's not really, as, this, this Christian thing is not really powerful. God isn't really great. No. Every Christian in this room Every Christian I've ever spoken to has always said, though they make mistakes, though we choose other things than God, though we still sin, though we still fall, you know what the same conclusion they come to is? That Jesus is satisfying. That Jesus is worthy. So when you surrender to God, you're not giving up freedom and you're not giving up your satisfaction you are actually gaining it. You're not losing your freedom and your satisfaction. You're actually gaining satisfaction. You're actually gaining freedom, freedom from sin and a satisfaction in Jesus. Psalm 1611 says, in God's presence, which you are brought into when you come to faith in Jesus, in God's presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's a relationship with God. Now, more powerful 
than looking at all the facts, more powerful than that, is the testimony of how the message of the Bible has changed lives, how they've met Jesus, it's changed their lives forever. Salt Company, I want to do something. If you're in this room and Jesus has changed your life, I invite you to stand up. Right now, go ahead, stand up. I invite you to stand up if Jesus changed your life. Now, I want you to look around. If I went around to every single person here and I gave them an opportunity to share how Jesus has changed their life, they would tell story upon story, stories that you wouldn't believe, stories of past abuse, stories of addiction, just stories that you wouldn't believe, messy people coming to a good and glorious Savior. The Bible is worthy of your trust. The Bible is worthy of your heart. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, how it's reliable, how we can come to hear your word, and God, how it pierces our hearts. I, I pray for those in the room who have a hard time trusting that your word is actually something that they can put their trust in, they can, they can read these things and, and rely on them. That's actually going to point them to the true God. I, I pray that you would show them just through the experience of hearing your word, even tonight, Lord, that they would experience a deeper and closer connection with you, Lord, that they would turn from their ways and turn from their sin and, and come to faith in Jesus and to trust that the Bible is truly reliable. God, you are good and you are worthy of our praise. And so God, we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll come to you guys and go ahead and stand up with us, those who are not already.